This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Google and parent company Alphabet definitely shaking it up. Uh, Jason and I breaking the headlines yesterday about Google founders' decision to step down, not away from the company, but even so indicative of, as we've talked about, Google as a different company, a middle-aged company perhaps, and what it will be in the future. Mark Bergen is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us along with Sophie Alexander, wealth team reporter at Bloomberg News, because there's some interesting money involved in all of this, Uh, both joining us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Mark, Sophie, um, great to have you both with us. Mark, let's just first deal with the news. The headlines broke. Jason and I were reading uh, the email that was sent out um, to everyone at Google about the changes. What is it indicative of? Uh, you know, someone uh, who used to work at Google <laughs> messaged me afterwards and said it just like makes official what was already what, what already happening in reality. Uh, and so it's indicative of the fact that that Sundar Pichai has basically been running um, Google and and Google, which is ninety nine percent of all the revenue and and close to that number as a personnel of Alphabet. Um, and and Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders, have been step receding back uh, further and further from daily operations. Um, and and here they are, sort of officially letting go, uh, albeit they're still on the board and uh, the you know controlling shareholders. Um, so it, it's it's a vote of confidence in Sundar. Um, it's also, as we reported this morning. Uh, you know, it's, it raises a lot more questions about the future of some of these businesses outside of Alphabet. The moonshots, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, you have the self-driving cars, but you also have digital cities, uh, healthcare, biotech, life extension work, um, artificial intelligence, drones, this sort of this endless list of, of, of fairly expensive projects that have yet to become like really commercially viable. Right. And so, Sophie, come on in here, because you know one of the things that we look very closely at is sort of the wealth generated uh, by these companies. And that's part of the reason why uh, we pay so much attention to them and, and really speaks to the influence that they have more broadly on society, uh, not just investors. So break down the numbers for us. What does this mean for the wealth of these two founders? Yeah, sure. So they both have about a 6% stake in the company. And, you know, after the news, shares went up about 2% last time I checked. And that means more than a billion dollars for each of the founders, Paige and Bryn. Um, And that's adding on to already, you know, tens of billions of dollars that they have. Um, Their net worth is mostly from Google shares, Alphabet shares. Um, And so this has just been a little added boost, a little retirement gift. Right. And it's just paper money at this point, unless they start to sell, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, Mark, I, I want to go back to something you were alluding to, which is sort of this moment where we are with the big tech companies. And, you know, Carol uh, sort of joked about them being in middle age. And in their letter, you know, they talked about, you know, this being, you know, sort of like leaving the nest, right? The 21-year-old leaving the nest. The 20- and we're like, eh, right. not so much. They're acting uh, like a much more mature company. And, and it's also a company that's, if not in a state of existential crisis, certainly existential angst. You know, I think back to the cover story in Business Week last week. You know, he's taking over a company fully, Sundar is, that is sort of wrestling with itself and its own identity in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, I mean, and he's been running the company for for four years, right? For at Google, and and our sense in our reporting is that you know the founders were are, are certainly um, probably involved in some of the major decisions, but yeah. but soon they're sort of been calling the shots, sure, right? Um, but yeah, you, you but now have, he's the guy, right? I mean, right, like absolutely. now he becomes like the person who's got to answer when Capitol Hill calls. He, right. you know, for all of these, that really take full responsibility. Yeah, and we just saw Elizabeth Warren tweeting um, earlier this morning that she's saying even now, you know, Larry Page has sort of avoided coming before Congress, even when he was CEO of the parent company. And she's saying now that um, he, she, that this doesn't mean that he's. Um, they're still not going to invite him to come to Congress, but it probably means that he's even less likely to show right. up. <laughs> so, Mark, what does it mean for Larry Page and Sergey Brin? So what what will be their roles now? Uh, I mean, officially they said they're, they're advisors. I don't, I mean, we've been trying to figure out, you know, how often they actually kind of showed up and, mm. uh, and arrived. My sense was that Sergey was involved in some of the, you know, Google X la- laboratory work, um, certainly around healthcare, where he's and passionate. Um, Larry Page, as we've reported, has been funding um, outside of Alphabet um, several different uh, autonomous flying car projects. Um, you know, they are they are not as far as billionaires. Been they don't give a lot to charity. Rather, they kind of put fun- funding into projects like um, extending life and. Um, flying cars, and so we might see more of that, right? Sergey has this blimp project that's been going on secretly in Mountain View for the past couple of years. Um, I think if if history tells us anything, they're going to continue to kind of um, put money behind these really futuristic tech. Um, that's what gets them excited. And so, Sophie, when you think about you know sort of your beat, the wealth beat, in in many ways, you know, part of the angst that is around the tech clash, and part of the angst around how we think about Silicon Valley in the in broader society is around the enormous wealth that that's been created. You know, as you look across the landscape there from where you sit in, in San Francisco, where where are we in in that discussion, and does this move it forward? What does this tell us about it? Um, I mean. We're not really seeing much of a hit to the wealth of these, you know, tech executives, right. these tech founders. Um, there has been sort of a question over philanthropy, and you know, why aren't they giving more? And then, of course, there's the question of the wealth tax, and should they be paying more? But you know, that hasn't really been so much focused on just the tech executives, more so around wealth generally. But it, it could be interesting to see um, if this sparks any more conversation. Well, and as your and Tom Metcalf's reporting uh, talks that this, you know. <laughs> The success of this company, right, still makes um, Sundar, Larry, and Sergey among America's richest executives. So we're talking, you know, they're they're up there on that list, correct? Yeah, that's right. Sundar is not quite a billionaire, but he's definitely got hundreds of millions. And you know, as working on it. His tenure goes on. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, great to. Great to check in with the two of you. Mark Bergen, technology reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco, along with Sophie Alexander, wealth team reporter at Bloomberg News. Google shares are a little bit higher, but I think uh, also higher with along with the overall market bound. Changing the weather. Changing the weather. Bit of a change in the weather happening, certainly a change in the weather here in New York City. It's much nicer in Austin, Texas, I'm sure. Uh, Bob Smith knows all about that. He's the president and chief investment officer of Sage Advisory Services based down in that fair city, but he's here with us in New York City today. How are you? I am great, and it's so good to be with you, Carol and Jason. Thank you. Um, very happy to be here. You know, this is Sustainable Investing Week in New York. Right. And uh, so many meetings and happenings going on, and tonight, 
I get to go to the very first Sustainable Development Goal Film Festival, where there were over 400 films entered from around the world, and there's going to be a selection tonight of awards for the best film that represented each one of the Sustainable Development Goals. So it should be a really exciting and fun moment, and uh, this is something that's been kind of co-hosted by the UN and I was going to say, it's the UN Sustainable Development Goals, Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Where are we in in the conversation around sustainability? What have you taken away from this year's version of Sustainability Week? Feels like we're in a bit more of a serious moment in a good way that that people are taking a little bit more seriously. Uh, Look, it's really simple. It is a frequent conversation now. Not infrequent, very frequent. And that's between advisors, consultants, uh, asset owners, all over the world, and we're seeing it growing by leaps and bounds at this point. Um, you know, the growing demand for that, I think, to a certain extent, really is a reflection. Uh, if you look at it from a consumer standpoint, there was the uh, the adage that was coined back in the '60s: "You are what you eat," and we know that you know products and brands are really accelerating on the basis of having uh, really organic products, environmentally sensitive products, non-GMO products. So, to the extent that you are what you eat, I also think that you you invest as you consume. Mm. And I see that the, from a consumer perspective, it is bringing more and more investors into the fold. And um, so, you know, why would you be consuming products of that nature and not investing the same way? It's incompatible. How much of ESG is greenwashing? How much is really thinking about sustainability and doing things right and thinking about the impact on the environment? Yes, yes. Now, you asked the question of the day. And I think that uh, in our business, you know, you always have to kick the tires and you always got to, you know, pinch everything that you're looking at and say, is this real? Uh, I think that, you know, investment managers uh, are becoming more and more enthusiastic about offering these products. But, you know, the barriers to entry are few, hence greenwashing. Uh, And I think investors have to be careful. How long have you been at this? Uh, Show us the research that you've originated. Show us how you come about picking one company versus another and show us the process. And let's talk about the ones you throw away as opposed to the ones you include. And I want to know why. And so philosophy and process is really, really important. And I think that's where you really have to start asking the tough questions. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is that the public is getting more and more informed. Uh, this week we saw MSCI, one of the large mm-hmm. data producers right. in, in the world, have essentially open sourced all of their ESG ratings for the thousands of companies that they are now rating from an ESG perspective, and essentially red hatting their information to the general public so it's no longer going to be oh I have to go through some third party to get that data it's out there on request so um, you see more and more of this coming the other thing that I think is an important trend uh, I was at the sustainability accounting standards board forum yesterday there were over 800 participants in that meeting yesterday that was a hundred people two years ago it's an amazing growth but the one thing that we saw was that CEOs uh, and board members 75 to 80 percent of public board members now are grappling with ESG risks and also the opportunities that if they manage them well what can accrue to the bottom line and improve value for our stakeholders and when you look at sort of across ESG we were posing this question to somebody uh, recently mm-hmm. where are you finding the most sort of where is it gaining the most purchase I, I guess what are people sort of gravity gravitating toward uh, of the environmental 
environmental, social, or governance uh, issues? Well, I, I, I think that the way I look at ESG, the E is environmental, yeah. but it also is where your heart and your emotion is. Mm. It is everything that we experience. No human on this planet doesn't have some experience about what's going on within the environment around them, and varying different views about that. I look at the social side as being our soul. That's where we care and you know demonstrations of caring for one another and then there's the g g is the intelligence and the intent and the g is is the driver as far as we're concerned you can't have good e and s without having great g so what you want to have are really well-intentioned companies that execute and they reach the outcomes that they promise and they demonstrate that good company coca-cola you look at what coca-cola has now done this year with its annual report it's a sustainability report that used to be issued separately now they've combined it with their annual report and their 10k and they said this is so very important that this has to go hand in hand it can't be separate anymore and look in the business roundtable statement, you know, this August right, right. clearly tells you right. where the direction of CEOs are going. Right. They're becoming more sensitive. Well, it's something we talked about big time at the Bloomberg Global Responsible Investing Forum just right. this week that we hosted here at Bloomberg headquarters. Bob Smith, thank you very much. President and Chief Investment Officer at Sage Advisory Services based in Austin, Texas, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday. You need a hand, I can assure you this, I can help. If you think about those that have been an advocate for better governance and accountability in the private sector and in government, this individual definitely comes to mind. Anat Imadi is Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford Graduate School of Business based in Palo Alto, California, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you back with us. Thank you. So I have to ask you, you're, we're looking at, Jason and I reading your latest post, you seem to be calling out your own profession, academia, what's going on? Well, you know, I look around and, you know, there are a lot of problems in this world. And so we have an emphasis like you had just now about the private sector, uh, for-profit private sector, being ESG and doing good and doing well and all this stuff. And I'm asking what's the role of, of my tribe, of the academics, in making a system work? Capitalism, democracy, you name it. We see, we're very privileged in academia, let me tell you. I mean... We don't make the money that some people who come on your show do make, but uh, but we're okay, right. and we have tenure, and so and we have expertise. But so the question it, I have: What is it that you want? Your I want peers academics to. Do? to so I, I live in that bubble, and I've lived in that bubble for a long time until I came down from that 80th floor of the ivory tower down mm -hmm. to the ground, and. What I've seen, you know, was pretty sobering about the realities of the kinds of assumptions, especially in my tribe of economists, make. And so we, you know, we became the field, economics in particular, of making assumptions that every other academic silo of different departments is kind of leaving big gaps between them. And so you got a bunch of siloed academics, universities basically allow us all, you know, free market of ideas to do what we want. And somehow the assumption is that when all of that, the invisible hand of that happens, the market for ideas, for publications, however it works in academia, that all of that produces kind of the best outcome for the world. We're a nonprofit institution. You don't think it does? Well, I think I think it does, but it, I think it can do better. I think that in the areas that I know about, in particular in business schools and in, in economics and in other areas, including tech, I was recently involved in, mm -hmm. you know, even HBO Silicon Valley series to kind of, as a medium to get through to the public, we can do better both to, uh, to kind of 
make sure that you know powerful people are right. accountable including in governments help the government so in other words the whole idea of private sector doing good as I described in last time I was here we discussed my mm-hmm. Harvard Business Review piece on yeah. on that was that governments can't do stuff and I'm saying if government can't do stuff then why is that and did you contribute to that in other words did you steal their people did you know right. did you are you are we not paying them enough in other words why is it that the governments are failing I want that problem to be more of our collective problem including in particular academics well and I do feel like the last time you were here we were talking about the business roundtable yep. uh, which mm-hmm. came up at our last yep. segment as well and this notion that companies are having a moment where they're starting to think more holistically about their responsibility to society. And I guess what I would ask you is, is it just a moment or is this a secular change? And and if we don't know yet, when will we know? I think there's plenty to do for everybody. So I think it's all like welcome and fine as far as it can go. But, you know, we have a society in which we don't leave it to people to decide how fast to drive on the road. We have speed limits right. and policemen and all of that. So my question is, what are the rules? And, you know, just last weekend over Thanksgiving weekend, supposed to be a happy weekend, but I happened to go watch Dark Waters, a, war- yes. a movie about DuPont and the lawyers. So, and these are unregulated uh chemicals and so the whole problem the legal problem of DuPont was that it misled people sort of tobacco style about the harm from those chemicals and people got sick and this one lawyer you know ruined his life 20 years and they're still he and an actor producer now uh Ruffalo are are going around you know advocating that people should be aware of that then just to read something very comforting I read a book called Bottle of Lies and Bottle of Lies is about the generic Manufacturers yeah. that are giving you had us a downer of a holiday weekend. I know. I, I was really like, well, why so, am I not reading something more so, cheerful? Yeah. So but it's like, who's going to solve that problem? Who's going to make sure that the drugs we take that come from India are inspected properly? I thought F F, and then I, and then you read about Boeing. Okay, so FAA, FDA, these are the regulations that were supposed to be on well, top of the world. Well, what's interesting is we have an administration. We had a story in the Bloomberg that talked about there's a lot more lobbyists within the administration, right. former yeah, lobbyists. Yeah, exactly. So okay, so what role? Read fifth risk of Mark. Michael Lewis. Right. So what role does academia play in kind of bringing to light some of this? Because what's interesting is, and I've worked at a business school, you know, you often have a lot of professors working with the business community, consulting, and so there's not a very black and white or strong division. Exactly. So I'm here actually very related to this writing, and and I just, you know, got added in uh, later uh, for this week, is a conference on academic lobbying at Columbia tomorrow and Friday. That's why what brought me to this uh, city. So, this so time, what needs to be done? What I'll tell you what needs to be done. The incentives of the academics are not right because there are incentives coming from the private sector, expert witnesses, uh, consulting. consulting. Fun, now we have a story about Google funding research in Wall Street Journal recently, et cetera, et cetera. So the private sector you know, funds pharmaceutical research and you know, you just you, you, I was promoting Coca Cola for right. great ESG, but it's it's the sugar you know manufacturers that distorted nutrition research back then, and that was again academics uh, for for sale uh, doing that. But 
lobbying for the public, which is really where the political problem is, where the thin political markets is, where only conflicted academic, conflicted experts in general, not academic necessarily, are involved in writing accounting rules or whatever, right. you know, is the underbelly of the, of the whole thing. Why don't we as academics do not have incentive to do that sort of pro bono mm -hmm. work, you know, the kind of thing I've been running around doing and I'm reflecting and so that why means universities I'm so alone. And schools yes. need to kind of set the Encourage rules. that. Right. Yeah. Encourage so that us what to be involved with our conflict. Yes. Right. So is it up to the universities then to set different rules? Well, we, 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 uh, when we evaluate people for tenure or, you know, the, the people who do well in that profession, in the academic profession, they publish papers and they teach. Uh, and then what they, else they do is usually, you know, consult if they do that or whatever. They can choose a cause. They can become involved in, you know, school board or whatever else, like everybody else on the side. But professionally, what I think and what I've seen Just is got huge gaps, yeah. huge gaps in the understanding of policymakers, of issues that we know about, that we have a lot of knowledge about. And it's our duty, I think, and, and, and responsibility to help them and to hold them accountable. Yeah, there's a there's a lot in terms of things that I think need to change. And unfortunately, when there's money um, involved in the situation, it really complicates it. Anat, whenever you come in, we have really a thoughtful conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Anat Admani, she's finance and economics professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business, normally on the West Coast, abnormally here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, but so glad to have her uh, with us. And we should point out, uh, she works at the number one business school, according to Bloomberg Business Week. She, we were, uh, she works at the number one business school, according to Bloomberg Business Week. Really? We were there. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and our students, 80 of them, signed a petition saying they Did want to talk they? more about blue, about uh, business and society. Interesting. All right. Yes. Well, they are the best and the brightest. Great. We met some of them. And we did. We can say that it's away. true. Yeah. I felt like a low achiever, I have to say, with some of those that have started up companies while still getting their MBA. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, it's that time of year, the Bloomberg 50. We've been talking about Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda isn't on the Bloomberg 50, but... I'm going to say mistake, but <laughs> no. that's okay. We'll get to that later. We up the ante. <laughs> Baby Yoda's boss is that's on right. the list. That's what's so right. cool. Joel Weber just pointed that out to me. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive. We thought of everything. Studio. We were way ahead of it. <laughs> way ahead. Brett Baby Began. Yoda's agent is calling yeah, exactly. right now. Yeah. Hey. 2020. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Stay tuned. Brett Began, he's the architect of this entire thing. It is a labor of love or something like it. Uh, it's just an amazing sort of tour to force and you really understand 2019 in all its complexity if you just read this list uh so brett tell us how this all gets put together yeah so we start about six months ago something like that and we poll uh the reporters and writers really throughout the organization on who they think is doing particularly well uh, this year and um, who's on their radar in the areas that they cover and also who has a really firm provable piece of data to back up the fact that um, they think they're doing well so we that's how we start and we sort of window down from there that's that part's key though right like yeah everybody's got a, a list of some variety and it can be really subjective and the thing that's really distinguished our version of one of these end of year lists is that there's actually a metric and everyone has to have a metric in order to even be considered. And then it's sort of like a, a big bake off of who's got the best metrics. And it's entirely global. We have an ama amazing amount of parity, uh, both among men and women. Um, and we also had an object of some 
sort this year, Brett. What was that? What was that? Do you well, want yeah, this is a delicious, this is, this is a delicious, a delicious late <laughs> add to the list. Uh, Popeye's chicken sandwich. Um, we have made my, my stomach just grow an, yeah. <laughs> an actual entry on the list. So not Popeye's, the business, the actual chicken sandwich. Um, is on the list and they uh, basically were they had a three month supply or so they thought and that ran out in 14 days right and that's a good the, metric and broke the internet in the basically process. broke the internet I mean, people were lining up for this thing right? oh people, line, people died somebody somebody got stabbed uh, <laughs> Sorry, waiting in stabbed. line for we one should of not these. laugh yeah. Yeah. no I mean it you know they they did not um, I would say there were some supply chain issues yeah. we could we could put it that well, way didn't you say I think it, it, the write up that people were showing up like you could show up um, and bring your own buns because yes, we had the chicken I guess they actually were offering a BYOB version if you bought your own buns they would give you some chicken and you could put it on your own bun. It is kind of insane. And it was basically became huge because of a Twitter war between so, them and Chick-fil-A. So that's a fun one, but yes. I think there's some really other serious <laughs> ones on the list as well. Um, one that we, we uh, talked about for a long time was the Hong Kong pro- protesters, right? Right. right. Um, we spent a lot of time on them and, um, yeah, so they're on the list because, you know, by their measures, there were at times two million people protesting. Um, the protests have gone on for six months. And, you know, a lot of times protests like this sort of reach a natural conclusion. There's a sort of ebb and flow to it. This one is not. Um, and so it actually, to Joel's point, when you're writing about something like this, you're <laughs> trying to sort of, you know, you're writing about a moving target at all times. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, you know, some of the famous people on the list are interesting, but uh, in part because of that metric element, you know, you really have to have a hardcore superlative in many ways. Yeah, you could have Warren Uh, Buffett on this list every year. The point of us doing it this way is to say like, okay, but did he have a demonstrable thing that he did this year that really distinguishes him from his peers? That's right. And no, Uncle Warren did not. Like Ms. Jenner. Yeah, Kylie Jenner. Um, the world's youngest billionaire entrepreneur, uh, self-made billionaire, 22, uh, not bad. Gen Z's first billionaire. Gen Z's first billionaire. Um, and, and reaching that status alone probably would have gotten her on the list. And then just because she wanted to be on this list so badly, she went and did a deal. That's right. She knew she might have a shot of getting on the list. And uh, so she went and did this deal with Cody, uh, which bought a majority stake in the line for $600 million. Seal the deal. Ass- yeah. Assuring her inclusion yeah, on the exactly. list. That's right. Once that happened, she was definitely on. I have to say, I love, too, that you've got some athletes, female athletes, that are really notable. Yeah, so we have the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, which is now responsible for the two single most viewed soccer games in the history of our country. Hear that, men? Soccer players? Yeah. Soccer team? And to that point... Right. And to that point, they have been fighting for pay equity. And so that, you know, added an extra layer of of interest to us putting them on the list. All 28 of them uh, voiced that concern. And really what they're asking for is what Australia recently did with its soccer team. And they decided to have parity there. And I love that you did Simone Biles as a former gymnast. Man, this this Chiquita is unbelievable. She is an unbelievable athlete. 25 world championship medals makes her the most celebrated or decorated uh, gymnast in world championship history. You might need like multiple rooms for that kind of trophy That's shelf. a lot of gold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I'll just keep expanding this trophy room. <laughs> that is a lot of gold. Uh, who's one to watch? I love that list. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot on ones to watch here. This is this is a lot of fun. Actually, and, they're... Yeah, they're, that's right. These are the ones that aren't 
like maybe demonstrable this year, but right. ones that we think either next year or in years to come, these are people that we think uh, are ones to watch. I got especially excited because Jason Kelly's on the list. That's I didn't right. know my co-anchor was going to be on the yeah. list. And then I realized yeah, so I am not one to watch. There's is, another well, you are, but not, you know, not officially. Yeah. Jason Kelly, yeah, the co-founder um, and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks, um, the biology, genetic biology company that's genetically engineering stuff for fertilizer and drugs and food flavorings and a lot of other applications. Um, you know, there's so many interesting people on this list. It's actually like hard to, to, to pick. We have a couple of fashion designers who are really shaking up the way fashion drops occur. They're not doing shows. They're doing their own drops right. when they want to. It's a great list. All right. You got to read it. And we're going to be celebrating it uh, on Monday here yes. in New York City. Uh, Brett Began, features editor for Bloomberg Business Week, the architect of the B50, and Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, architect of the whole darn shebang. Thank you both so much for presenting us with the B-50. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We've got equity averages just off their highs of the session. A little bit of a bounce back from yesterday's selling. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the markets. We've got with us Charles Lemonidis. He is founder and chief investment officer at the investment manager ValueWorks, which, as the name indicates, focuses on a value discipline. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive studio, uh, Broker Studio here in New York. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. It's great place to be. So it is a great place to be. Lots of snacks and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm curious about, um, value has not always been an easy play in this market that just continues to grind higher and higher and higher. What's been the strategy that you've been advising for investors? Well, value has been worse than not good. It's been absolutely abysmal for the past year, two years, three years. Yeah. And it sort of makes you wonder, is it ever going to change? And I think that near term, you're likely to have a bunch of, of reversions to the mean and value to bounce back. But I think that over the next several years, value as a general category of like low price things, bad out of favor things, I don't think is going to work that well. I think the key is going to be buying things that are cheap that then f people fall in love with. Mm. Because the difference in price between what people don't like and what people like today is huge. And so are there areas, are there sectors that provide some opportunity on that front? Yeah, I think there are a whole lot. Um, one that I think is, is really ripe for just a, a big bounce from these places is energy. Okay. Um, you know, that, that space has been Which absolutely- has been dismal. Right. And the bounces, though, you know, are, are 20, 40 percent bounces from the bottom wow. and could easily give your your portfolio a big advance. What kind of energy, though? There's the big integrated oil companies. You could go the equipment side. I mean, how do you play it? I mean, and this is really kind of a bet on energy of the future. Um, it or is maybe. A, it a may bit. or may not be a bet yeah. on energy of the future. Look, um, Hopefully, we're going to move away from fossil fuels over the next decade, and hopefully, alternative energy sources will become really exciting. And there are some ideas out there to, to buy, but in the meantime, you know, you're getting companies that are drilling for oil offshore. Transocean is 
you know, a couple of billion dollar equity cap. They've invested five times, 10 times that to build those rigs. And regardless of what happens in the next month or two, you know, for the next five, 10 years, we're going to be drilling a lot of offshore oil. So that's one place. Then the supply ships that bring them out there is another place. And I, really, I didn't realize Transocean's down 22% this year. They've gotten really beaten up. And that's after being down, you know, 70% from its high before this year. So right. it's, they've come down a long, long way. Yeah, they've had just year after year, 2017, 2018. Yeah, just beaten up. Uh, talk to us about financials. Uh, Goldman is a name I, I believe you're interested in. Tell us why. Well, you know, financials have had a 10-year period when they've been sort of the whipping boy of, of Washington and been under the gun, and for good reason. And, you know, look, they brought us into the financial crisis, and, you know, th th it makes a lot of sense that they were punished for a long time after that. But at this point, Goldman is trading at a discount to book value and trading at 10 times earnings and has really, you know, gotten shellacked over the, the 12 months up till a year from now um, in a way that, was really more about the market than what they're doing specifically right or wrong. And so, you know, it's a place where three or five years from now, I think they'll be in favor. And I think they'll trade at, you know, two times book or one and a half times book. And I think book will be 50% higher. So I think over two and a half to five years, you get a double out of the stock. Charles, talk to us about Apple. Well, Apple is this really This is a value play? Speaking of Goldman and the card and <laughs> yeah. all of that, intersection. Well, you know, we, we owned Apple 20 years ago when it was trading at networking capital, and we sold it at 4 or 5x that on the way up, and we're out of it until this time last year. Um, and when it came back down to 200 and down to 160... In December, are you talking about? We bought it in November and December of last year on its way into the slop shoot. Okay. Um, so now we've had a good bounce. But there isn't a company out there with better brand loyalty and a better franchise than Apple, and really a claim on the future, you know... People are going to be upgrading their phones a year from now, two years from now, to 5G phones. And that's not in the stock price yet. I mean, people are talking about how Apple is still behind the curve on 5G. They are, but they won't be 12 months from now. So when the enthusiasm comes into it, I think there's really good risk-reward. And it's okay that it's, I hate to say one-trick pony, because it's not, but it's predominantly one-trick pony in that the phone is what generates so much to the top and bottom lines. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a product that people really like that generates the whole returns for the company. I think Coca-Cola was like that for a really long time. Right. And yeah, okay, eventually it runs its course, but I think it lasted for, for a couple of decades for Coca-Cola. Um, Apple may or may not be that strong a franchise. I'll take that as a, you're okay that it's a one-trick pony. <laughs> <laughs> At least for now, for a while. At least for now. Uh, anything else in the tech world that uh, strikes your fancy? Um, you know, I think I think there's value up and down the continuum. Yeah. I think Micron Technology is, mm -hmm. you know, look, they own the DRAM business. And the amount of memory that's going to be produced and consumed over the next five years is just going to blow you away. I mean, look at what Amazon is doing with their little stores where you walk in and they have cameras watching everything you do and every piece of item you pick up and put down. That takes oodles and oodles of memory. Um, we're going to have that sort of data massed out there across the world. And there's no one who provides that sort of memory like Micron does. Do and it's trading at, you know, four times peak earnings. So you don't worry about anybody coming in and kind of eating away at their business, at least anytime soon. They're a giant in the space and they are, they're the 800 pound gorilla. All right. So as we look ahead to only about 40 seconds left, but as we look ahead to 2020, election year is always uh, a little tricky maybe for investors. Are we betting on fear, relief, greed? What, what takes the day here? 
Well, look, near term, there's fear in the market and there's fear on both sides of the political spectrum that the other bastards are going to win. Oh, can I use that word? I'm here. I'm sorry. But there's fear on both sides that that the bad guys are going to win somewhere along the, the next 12 months. That fear is likely to go away on one side. Right. And that's going to take away a huge headwind. If 50 percent of us are not afraid. These markets waft higher with a tailwind instead of a headwind from both sides. And you That's do point really out in your research the past nine presidential election cycles have included declines followed by relief rallies. There you go. We shall right. see. We'll look forward to that. Uh, Charles Lemonitas, founder and chief investment officer of ValueWorks, here with us in New York City. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.